I know as a Black community, I mean, we haven't been quiet about it, but we can't be the only ones talking about it. Clearly, there has to be enough, particularly white people in the country who are active and who want to know and who are educating themselves. And it seems like after these recent events that there's a bigger number of people willing to uh, face some of these things. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Tell. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. We have a very exciting and fun interview today, but first I want to introduce my co-host for this afternoon and this podcast, my dear friend, Joy D. Michelle Moore. Joy, good afternoon or good morning where you are. Yes, it's morning time here. Hello, everyone. Good to be here. It's good to see you and it's good to hear you. All right, so without anything further, I'm going to introduce our guest so we can get right to the burning questions that we have him. Ladies and gentlemen and audience, welcome. Welcome our amazing, talented guest today, Hubert Point du Jour. Welcome, Hubert. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such an honor to have you and see you. You look very well. Uh, not everybody can see you, but I can see you. Take my word, you look very well, healthy. <laughs> yeah, take his word. <laughs> <laughs> How are you since pandemic shut everything down? I mean, you have a new exciting show that just came out. Tell me how you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. You know, um, it's, this time has certainly had its um, challenges for sure, but I'm really grateful to have this project that I put so much into last year to be coming out and be able to finally talk about it and share it with friends and family and get their feedback. That's been really fun. Well, let's jump right in, shall we? Let's talk about your new show, The Good Lord Bird on Showtime. That's where you can get it. You want to tell us a little bit about the book it's, it's based off of, a little bit about your character, a little bit about the show. Tell us everything. Sure, sure. It's um, The book is about a fictional character named uh, Henry Shackelford, who's nicknamed Onion. It's about how he came to know the historical figure, the white abolitionist John Brown, and how Onion became part of John Brown's raid on the armory at uh, Harper's Ferry that aimed to start a, a slave revolt. I play Bob, who is removed from bondage by John Brown separated from his family and is trying to basically stay alive while he's headed headfirst into battles with John Brown so that he can find his way back to his family. So a lot of the, the premise is you guys going out to abolish slavery, to take it away, and you getting reunited with your family. Yes, that's what Bob's goal is, but because of good writing and good drama. Bob can't achieve that goal right away, you know? As an African-American actor, when you got this part, was there a different kind of excitement for you about, oh my goodness, I'm about to be a part of telling history? Or was this the same level of excitement as getting a well-paying job? Was it a different kind of 
excitement. Definitely the excitement of getting a well-paying job. That's always, that's always, <laughs> always exciting. Yeah. I had only had vague memories of John Brown. Perhaps he was, his story was glanced over when I was in school. After I booked the job was read the book and just sort of do a crash course on his history and refresh my memory on a lot of the things I had learned about, which I knew and I know instinctually as a Black person, but just specific things about African-American history. And I dusted off my books from college and I immersed myself in that world. But before all that, when I got the audition, what really attracted me to the project was certainly the language popped in a way that I had only really encountered in the theater world, you know, heightened language that has aspects of uh, what I consider poetic elements and just a way that people just don't talk every day. James McBride's language pops, and I really latched onto that. And so it was the language, and it was the circumstances that Bob was in, and it was most definitely the humor. And I was just so fascinated about how I, we could be touching on this subject matter, this this material, and yet I couldn't help but laugh as I read the sides and as I read the script. Oh, wow. So they find a way to make it very palatable and digestible instead exactly. of- Exactly. Yeah. Okay, nice. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately- oh, he, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joy. You go. I didn't get a chance to see it like Eric has, so I'm waiting with bated breath to be able to see it. I've heard so many good things about it. Sweet. Yeah, it's really very, very good. It's jaunting, and the language took me a minute to, like, I think with all- pieces it's so very specific and the language is so specific I would assume to the time period and to these characters what was the audition process like for you the audition was a self-tape I didn't go into casting to a casting office my agency has a room specifically to put actors on film and I've taken full advantage of that over the last few years or so since they've had it and I was terribly ill, actually. I had a horrible virus. I wasn't sure if I was going to even be able to read for the part. I went in and um, put myself on tape and got a response right away and got a note from the director of episode one, Albert Hughes. And he asked me to tape my two scenes again. It was two, two scenes from the show. But to keep the seriousness of it, but amp up the humor, which made no sense to my team at all. You know, my agents and managers were like, what does this note mean? Can you interpret this? Right. And I, I knew what they wanted and I retaped, made some adjustments. And then I was in Virginia in under two weeks. Wow, quick. That's interesting. Yeah. I think I know what that note means, but you know that you know what that note means because you booked the job. So <laughs> yeah. what does that note mean? Yeah. Yeah, how would I explain it? I think I just basically... You know, with language like this, you just got to trust it. I did. And I just kind of leaned into it more. And I that that was kind of what I told myself to just continue to trust the words and the gravity of this scene, which one of my audition scenes was my entrance in the show. It's a really baffling scene in, in a lot of ways because it's a scene with a bunch of white men. I'm the only black character in the scene. And yet I have all the power in the scene and they're depending on me to help them read a document over this land that they're having a dispute over and my character is refusing so i'm reading the scene like who's this crazy black character why is he not like reading this you know what i had to do was just sort of trust it and um i just leaned into the seriousness of it a little more and i think it made me 
made my character come off a little more confident and more assured. And that was a great contrast to the other characters that are sort of flailing about and like, you know, arguing. And um, I think that in and of itself helped add to the, the humor, if any of that makes sense. <laughs> you know? Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. You've worked a lot of theater, especially a lot of classical theater in New York, and we're going to hit some of them. And you've done some TV, film, et cetera. What's the transition like for you? We like to talk to artists sometimes here about transition from stage to film and what the artist experience is like for that. I mean, besides just being on some lines or scenes like on The Good Wife or The Good Fight, et cetera, or SVU, which a lot of people have been lucky to do. But here, I mean, you have this weight of a character. I mean, you follow an arc of Bob, which is so incredible to number one get and then number one to be immersed in it what's the difference like from i know there's a loaded question but from stage to screen and then to have the opportunity to have a true arc on a new show yeah it's a great question and i am still learning so much about making this transition but obviously i had to step up to the plate for bob (laughs) and what helped me with this particular project kind of connects to what I was saying about the heightened language. That's something I know from, as you mentioned, the classical theater I've done, and I didn't shy away from that language. So having that language in an on-camera setting helped ground me, I think, in a way. And then it was just about my relationship to the camera, which is obviously the biggest adjustment that you have to make. You have to convey a lot in a small frame. There's not a big stage. No one's going to see what my foot is doing in a close-up. I made lots of mistakes on set, but the thing is, everyone is on the same team and everyone wants me to look good. And, you know, that we shot with two cameras. And what's great about being a regular on a show is that I get to be on a first-name basis with the whole team. I, I build a relationship with them. I get comfortable to ask questions and they get comfortable to tell me certain things. And, you know, there'd be a time when there'd be times where camera B would kind of poke his head out of the, you know, away from the camera and go, we can't see you, man. Can you just, you know, just adjust? I'm like, oh God, right. You want to see my face, right? So let me, so my relationship to the camera and my understanding about how to convey my thoughts and my, my character's objectives are getting better and better. And I, after this project, I just learned so much. We were talking about Joy and I went to school together and I remember that transition, you know, the first independent or commercial that I ever got right out of school. I was so, uh, I hit the mark sort of in the room and got the job. But once I got on set, I was so enormous. I was so used to working classical theater and everything was loud and big. It, It takes real discipline to bring that down for that little camera. Will you talk about that? I mean, I think that's really so interesting when an artist goes from stage to screen and how it translates. I feel like as an actor, yes, I have all this stage experience. I've done all these plays, which I'm very fortunate to have done and learned so much. And I feel like when I'm doing a play, the people in the first few rows, there are certain things that I instinctually do like subtle things that can only really be picked up in the front first few rows. Those things that I naturally convey are now the kinds of things that I can really exploit with on camera. But for stage, I've managed to have both. I can have these subtle things, then obviously be able to 
know how to reach the last row and convey something. That's been so fun for me. And I had all this stage training, but while I was in school, I was also doing a lot of work on my own, studying films and, and studying acting. I went to NYU undergrad and I didn't have any formal uh, on-camera work. We had some workshops. It, it was mostly theater. But on my own time, I was I spent an enormous amount of time in the library, in the media section, and I would Google an actor whose work I really admired, and I would try to find a very obscure work of theirs. And I took full advantage of the library there because they had so much. And so I'd be like, you know, Gary Oldman, and I'd get some random film of his, and I'd watch it, and I'd study it, and then I'd come back the next day, and I'd watch it again and study it some more. I did this throughout my time at NYU. So I was always, always interested in that subtlety of film acting. And the actors who I admire the most are the ones who convey so much by doing so little on camera. So between that and all the actors I love from stage, I think I've managed to get certain tools that have helped me in both realms. Yeah, you've done it flawlessly, at least on in this show the slightest movement of your eyes or your head. I, you're beautiful in this part. And the the show is, is very exciting and you're very, very good. I think when you see an actor on screen and it looks very effortless and that, you know, you just have to trust it and you're very good in this and it's the work is flawless. So I just wanted to tell you that. Well, that's really kind of you. And I think what I can add to that real quick is that, Ethan Hawke on my first day, it's my first day of work. I get there, I get a 30 minute crash course on how to ride a, a wagon with, with a single horse. And that's it. Go, just 30 minutes. That's all 30, 30 minutes. And they go, okay. And you're on, I'm doing this scene, this, this entrance scene that I touched on a little earlier. I do a few takes and Ethan comes over and he says, Hubert, what did, um, what did Hamlet say to the players? And I was like, oh, he, he says something about not using your hands too much or letting the words do the work. And he was like, exactly. He said, let the words do it. Because, you know, up until that point, I, w I did a few takes and it was fine. I was using my hands a little bit in a relatively tight frame, which wasn't really doing anything. And I just, I left it alone. I said, you know what? Let the words do their thing. That was just a great initial note to get from the man himself on the first day. Wow, that, I mean... And it's very generous. Do you find that you're working with a, a cast of people who are very generous in helping you? Sounds like the crew is quite generous for B camera to reach out and go, hey, you know, make that adjustment. Have you found that you have that same sort of camaraderie? Is there an ensemble being built? Um, no question. No question. Everyone was so, so nice. And first of all, I love being on set because I'm less experienced in that realm, I have no problem saying when I don't know something. And even more so in this situation, like I said, when I'm on a first name basis and I can, you know, after hearing, check the gate, check the gate, check the gate for all these episodes, I never knew what that was. And I finally asked someone, I said, what does this mean again? And camera A was like, oh yeah, it means this from this time period when they worked on the cameras and he, he, he broke it down for me. So, um, I just soak in everything from everybody on set. And even on certain days when I didn't have to shoot, I would 
go on set and people would um people call me by my character name when i was on set so they'd be like bob bob's on set like you we don't need you today like what are you doing you know and i'm like i'm here to just watch me <laughs> you know you wanted to soak it all in i mean i really did yeah when you arrived on set and uh and i'm fascinated by this i mean they they take us back all these years to this time what was that like to kind of arrive on set for the first day and see what it looked like. And um, that to me is always so fascinating when an actor talks about walking onto the set for the first time and um, mm. the environment. There was this huge land that we filmed on. I'm, I'm forgetting the, the name of it. It'll, it'll come to me, but there were so many pockets in this part of Virginia where we, we filmed so many of the outdoor scenes and it was quite beautiful, really, when we got out there. For my first scene on that first day, there was this huge lake and these huge, beautiful trees. But then I'm like, in this period garb, you know, I'm a man who's enslaved. And um, there are all these other white characters in the scene who are like pro-slavery. And they've got their like red shirts on and they're arguing about land. And then I have this like interaction with Onion and... Well, and then also just learning how to ride the wagon and the horse, that just put me into a certain kind of frame also. It's okay. like, okay, I'm like controlling a horse, I'm on a wagon, it looks like it's from 1858. And all those little things help put you in the world of the piece. This is a, a personal question. So as a creative and the mother of a creative, when did you know that this is the world that excites you and ignites you and that's what you want to do with your life? As far as acting, I knew in the 10th grade after I did the musical Oliver in high school, and I, I played the Artful Dodger. And Good part. Yeah, great part. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to, you know, have a little Cockney accent and everything. And um, I, I just had a ball with it and got such a great response. I went to, got accepted to a performing arts school in Syosset, Long Island. It's called the Long Island School of the Arts now. Yeah, yeah. I got accepted there and I... Throughout the course of that first year, I was a student there. It was almost a seamless, I was just all about it as soon as I went to that school. And um, before then, I had had experience on stage for years since I was five. I used to sing. So I used to sing with the church choir and school choirs and solos. So tons of experience performing, but with acting, not till the 10th grade. Wow. Wow. And so what did your parents think when you broke the news that I'm going to be an actor? Did they have other thoughts in mind for you? They had been so used to watching me perform. So I don't think it came as a surprise to them that I was working towards auditioning for conservatories and different training programs at colleges. That, that's what this performing arts high school helped us with the most, that that was their goal was to help kids get into a good program in college. So they, they weren't surprised and they, they were supportive, obviously concerned about finding work, I guess, you know, me finding work after school, but I did find work right away. And so there wasn't really a period where they were, came down hard on me really about the biz. They've been very supportive from day one. What a blessing. You're lucky. Yeah, very lucky. Lucky. And I mean, yeah. well, it takes talent and luck to find work so quickly and right out of school. And you're a Long Island boy. I'm so, so happy for our Long Island boys. <laughs> I want to take us back. You've worked at the public a lot. Um, the last thing you did there, I believe it was Much Ado About Nothing. 
Mm -hmm. at the Delacorte Theatre, and again, training in classical. You've done a lot of classical theatre. Are you going to talk a little bit about that production at Much Ado About Nothing and oh. your part? In yeah, uh, it was just a beautiful project to be a part of, especially we made history to be the first all-Black cast uh, in a show in the park. That was beautiful, and we made it our own, and it was it was beautiful to see all the different types of blackness portrayed with Shakespeare's words. That was really powerful. And so I was I was just so proud to be a part of it. And to be playing the villain was so fun because um, when I was in school, we did a production of Romeo and Juliet when I did the Shakespeare training at NYU, the classical studio. And you had to talk with the teacher there, the head of the program was named Louis Sheeter at the time. And when you auditioned, you had to also tell him why you wanted the role. And I auditioned for Tybalt. Um, and I said I wanted it because I'm such a nice guy that I don't think I'm going to get to play anyone with some bite, any kind of villain when I get out into the professional world. So let me do it now. And I had so much fun with it. You know, when I got another chance to <laughs> to play, to play a villain, it's so fun. You, you get to release a lot of <laughs> anger. <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I'm not even someone who's like... It was cathartic is what I'm trying to say. You know, anything that was bothering me got like every night got sort of thrown in this fire that I had to feed before every performance. And I was like, that's going in, that's going in, boom. And then I would like go on stage with like fresh fuel every night. But I relished playing Don John and I really tried to humanize him. And I think he was just... He's someone who was really upset and took things too far and tried to ruin this wedding. <laughs> but uh, I think at the end of the day, he was just, um, I just tried to look at him as a normal person who got really upset and took things too far. Well, villains are human beings, right? I mean, that's how you played it. And you you are, I've seen it twice. I saw it actually at the park and then it's televised mm -hmm. and people can watch it. It's an unbelievable production um, the production values are so incredible, and the cast is is unbelievable. But you're a real sob in this. I mean, you really. <laughs> I mean, you're. I mean, you you take villain to another level, and it, it's so human. You can see his human side, and you. That's when you know you've grabbed the audience. When you start to feel a little bit bad for Don John, you know, you're like, oh, so. Well done, really. And it's such a beautiful production. I want to just remind our audience here that's sitting in listening to this great interview that you can ask questions. There's a question and answer button on the bottom. It says Q&A and you can ask your question live or Joy or myself are happy to ask it. Go ahead, Joy. I know you got some questions. Yeah. So during um, this climate of what's happening you know, now in the world, so on and so forth, how has that taken a toll on you from being COVID to the civil unrest or any of the, the, the elections, like how are you able to maneuver through this and what tools are you using for self-care and, and mental wellness? It's a lot for everybody. Oh goodness, it is. It is so much. And um, you know, a after I wrapped The Good Lord Bird, I mean, I, I was still processing it when we got this deluge of back-to-back -back videos of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, and we learned about Breonna Taylor, et cetera, and the, um, the unrest and the, the protests and everything that happened. It caught me around that time, I had re-immersed myself in the world of John Brown 
because I, I wasn't done with it. I inhabited this character. I couldn't really shake it. So I continued. I, I read a whole book about John Brown. I read about the five black men who joined him at Harper's Ferry. My brain was just still grappling with it. I'm like, we did this show, but these were real people. I mean, real people went through this and my character, Bob, is fictional in Good Lord Bird, but he has he contains aspects of some of those Black men who um, joined John Brown and some of those men are actual characters in the show. But so I'm saying all that to say with everything going on in our country, I was immersing myself again in this history and, and trying to make those connections. And it is so disturbing to see the similarities and the the echoes of that time still reverberating right now. I was finding strength in solidifying the historical facts of what happened, the things that just get touched on in high school. And so, yeah, I, I, th- I think I found comfort in re-immersing myself in the history of it. And also there must be a comfort in knowing that as an artist, you are bringing to the forefront a piece of truth about who we are that allows a whole group of people and a whole generation of people that may not have any idea. And it opens a door to go, let me walk through this door and want to learn more about this. So that's what's exciting to me when I see things being done that deals with history, because I did go to HBCU. So I got a lot of history in my undergraduate learning. Mm -hmm. And then you have this information and you only see certain perspectives being told it does kind of make you go uh, 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 in the inside. And mm-hmm. so this must feel so illuminating to be a part of something that's giving life to things in a whole other dimension during a time like this, when it's so important. No doubt about it. That's one of the great things about the Good Lord Bird is it's helping us in a way have some of these uncomfortable conversations. And I think the way that the show does it or tries to do it is through humor, humor, is such a great way to help get people to the table and then talk about it. It definitely feels so good to be a part of that. And my question is actually, you know, for the both of you, we talk about, you know, what we've all learned in school. And you and I were both went to high school, you were performing arts high school, but we both in New York and what is in the history books about this time and what's not in the history books about this time. What is your feeling about that needs to change? I mean, more, more content, more realness, more, more everything in this period of time. I mean, I could tell you, you know, in probably 10 minutes about what I learned and about that time. I, I'd love to get both your perspectives about that and what, what needs to happen. I can touch on it brief and then I'll let Joy go too. But I, when talking about this, some of these issues if you don't have the context, the historical context, you're missing so much that you could bring to the conversation. I truly believe that people who are brave enough to face this history really gain some really important tools to bring to the conversation and then in turn help be able to work together with folks and move forward. So the country has swept them under the rug for so long and then things flare up and then people are like, oh my God. And then things kind of die down again. I know as a black community, I mean, we haven't been quiet about it, but we can't be the only ones talking about it. Clearly there has to be enough 
particularly white people in the country who are active and who want to know and who are educating themselves. And it seems like after these recent events that there's a bigger number of people willing to uh, face some of these things. We have to work together to move forward. And we have worked together, but there needs to be a prolonged, sustained period of partnership among all the folks who are in this country so that we can... um, address these issues and and move forward. But we have to know that historical context is so important in that work. I just want to add one more thing to it, Joy. I'm I'm sorry, you can take the rest. But I think I would love to get your point of view too about theater makers, producers, and what's going on in the American theater. And Joy and I talk about this all the time, about what needs to change there. And I'd love to get your point of view about about that. I mean, we've created this podcast now so we can really talk about some change and these conversations that are difficult to have, but we need to have them. Right. Um, go ahead, Joy. Okay. <laughs> that was good, Hubert. <laughs> He's like, I'll let you take that. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I think that racism is not Black people's problem. It's white people's problem. And we have to endure it, but it's not, we don't create it. So the people that are in positions to be able to produce and um, fund and direct and tell all these stories, they have to take a hard look at themselves when they're looking at material that's coming through and the things that they've said no to, they have to look at why they've said no to those things. Because they're, in my opinion, and there's been conversation around it, that there's a difference between Black theater and African-American theater. And things that are within the the realm of being African-American theater is the theater that makes the current patron of the theater comfortable with things being the way that they are while they get a little glimpse into Black life. And Black theater is just telling the story as it is. And it's not about trying to make anybody comfortable. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. And until some of these people in these positions that can, the positions of decision, decide to challenge some of their own biases and some of the biases that occur in their communities, theater is going to look the same. And I believe that theater is a place where we can shift consciousness. I think that energetic connection that happens between the audience and the performers is magical. And it's not quite the same as what happens in the comfort of our homes when we're watching television or streaming or what have you. I would just love to see some of these people really put their money where their mouth is and where they say their heart is. For example, uh, this has nothing to do with theater, but has everything to do with this kind of thought. A friend of mine was looking for an attorney and yesterday we're on the call, we're talking to somebody who makes references for attorneys. And I didn't even think to say this. She says, well, how, how many of this group that you work with are African-American? I'd like to choose an African-American attorney. And the gentleman that she was speaking with, he paused. I had to think, well, w- well, we have over 200 attorneys in the group. So I- I'm sure somebody is. And so she says, well, which one? And he says, you know, I- we don't have any. So that was a realization for him. And this is somebody who I know is a good person and considers them to, you know, themselves to be somebody on the right side of history, who's making a discovery for themselves that within my circle, I'm not employing 
anybody or able to refer you to anybody who could do that. So I need to open my circle. And I think that these people that are in positions of power in the theater need to examine their hearts and their minds and see if they're really helping to tell a true narrative or only a narrative that makes them comfortable. I know that was a lot and this isn't about me. So I'm No, sure. but I mean, I, I, mean I, I think your point of view is, is, is very important and I'd, I'd love to hear Hubert's take on this. And Yeah, well, I agree 100% with everything that Joy just said for like truly. And it, it made me think as you were just talking about this incident with the law firm, looking into the law firm, it made me, and, and looking for a lawyer of color, it made me think of this production that I was in. There's a baby in the production. I, I won't specify or whatever, but in rehearsals, and this was an all black cast, and in rehearsals, we were supplied with a white baby doll. And I, I just remember being so upset at that. And I was like, well, why is this? This is an all black production. You couldn't find a, a black baby doll for us to, and they went, oh no, like for the production, we're going to get a, but just for now, we just get, and I was like, no, I don't want, I want a black baby doll to rehearse with. I don't want like what, you know, and again, this is not like, I'm saying this was a bad person. I'm saying, you know, that the fact that that was the default that they didn't even think about it is it speaks to some of the work about the biases that people hold and um, how they need to confront them. Yeah. I'm already living in an imaginary circumstance. So you want me to go and live inside of another imaginary <laughs> circumstance while I'm creating this imaginary circumstance. Can you just go to the store, please? <laughs> wow. That it didn't even occur to the person with an all all black cast and here you got this little white baby. You're asking people to to create an environment to imaginary circumstance and here you are with a little white baby that it didn't even think about it is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. We, we got the black baby doll the next day. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet you did. <laughs> you know, but the fact that I had to bring it up was like, wow, really? You know, you know, I, I think also though, I've, I've been involved in some, I've been lucky enough to be involved in some productions on stage where I felt like the uh, writer of color was able to, to do their thing was given room it almost made me think of joy as you were talking before. It made me think of sometimes people say unapologetically black, you know, like, and you were making this distinction between African-American theater and, and black theater. And um, I feel like there have been a few productions I've been involved with where it was like, we could, I feel like much ado was obviously like, this is Shakespeare, but that we were like, this is a black show, black dance, black music. This is it. People even tweaked some of the language a little bit that might have irked some, you know, Shakespeare nods, snobs. But we were like, this is our show. This is how we're doing it. I love being a part of that, you know, because we, we shouldn't have to smooth things over or like apologize for who we are. We're black. We come in many different forms. We think many different things. That's what we tried to show with Much Ado as one example. I want to remind our audience, you know, that Much Ado about nothing it was filmed, I believe, for... PBS, mm -hmm. and you can actually get it on demand, and you can see Hubert and Danielle Brooks and Grantham Coleman in a magnificent cast with this great song, set, costumes, singing. I encourage our audience to go watch this beautiful piece of theater that was made and watch our guests be a real 
human SOB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you going to say? Say it. Go ahead. <laughs> it, it reminds me, it made my skin crawl a little bit, but it's those kind of performances that I admire so much in you. I mean, you, you have a real versatility to be able to play so many different things and my hat's off to you for that. And, you know, the casting people and directors give you an opportunity to kind of go a whole spectrum of the human side. So, I really admire that about your work. Where, besides, so you went to NYU for undergrad. Did you go to grad school too, or you just started working right away? Um, I, I did not go to grad school. I, I thought about it, but because I went to this performing arts high school for two years and then had my time at NYU, and I was a little bit, I'll say, overbaked mm-hmm, with, uh, with NYU because, yeah. you know, but also because I, I just had a little, I had some time, some trouble getting out of school. But once I got out, I was like, I can't look, I'm sure I could get a ton more from grad school, but let me start giving this the go. And I got lucky to start working right away. And then I was off and running. I have a question from the audience. You've worked with some amazing directors. What style of director do you enjoy working with? And to add on to that, I think this is a, a good question that we ask some of our artists. After you answer this one, what do you expect from the director? Mm. Well, I do like when a director says, I don't know. I've heard some other actors say it, but I don't hear it often, but because it kind of puts me at ease. I'm not really, I don't really enjoy too much coming in a room where I get the sense that the director has everything set and is a quote unquote expert on the project. I feel like they're putting me in a box. I like when a director is like figuring it out and I ask a question and they're like, I don't know, let's figure it out together. So I love hearing that. I like when the director gives me a lot of room to try things and they create a safe space. When a director creates a, well, I think that's just a huge part of their job, creating a safe space so that the actors feel comfortable trying things during this rehearsal process that's, you know, we, we typically get a, a month with plays. And I am the type of person during a rehearsal process for theater where I throw things at the wall and I I just try different things and I, I need to feel safe enough to do that because we have time to explore and I don't want to sit down on day one and they go this is it and then there's three weeks it's like what are we we're there already you know so I like to push the boundaries and it may look bad quote unquote one day or whatever but I don't mind as long as I feel safe it's fine because it's it's rehearsal it's all good when we get in front of an audience, it's a different thing, but we refine it during previews and that's that's more time to, to learn. So I like the director giving me room and then I like them coming in closer to the preview period and helping me and then giving me adjustments and going, great, try this, try this. And then I soak in all the notes and then I'm kind of like thirsting for them because for me, that's around the time where I start asking questions. I don't really talk much at the beginning of a process, even at table work. I'm relatively quiet, but once we're getting close to previews, that's when I'm like, my script is marked up like a mad person. And I'm coming to the director like, what's this and this and this and this? What do you think about this? Yeah, that's a little bit of how I like to work with a director. Do you have um, a fantasy role? Like that role that you're going, I would love to play this kind of person in this kind of place anywhere in the world, at any time in life, in any reality or altered reality? Mm, great question. 
I've been thinking about this some, and I mean, I've narrowed it down to three. <laughs> there's three particular kinds of roles that I would really be interested in playing in the future. And one of them is a musician because I love music so much and I would love to play a musician. And I don't have a specific type of musician in, in mind necessarily, but I would love to bring this love of music I have to a character who plays music in some way. And I'd love to also, I, I don't see enough people of color in the future in <laughs> in movies and and TV shows. And I just want to see, I, I want to be a part of a project. I'm thinking more on camera, but I think that includes theater also, where it's Black folks in the future. <laughs> you know, it could be the not do this in future or even further along. And the third thing would be, because I'm such a, I guess I consider myself a city boy. I would love to play a character that's in touch with nature. All three of these are slightly general, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. What was the first one again? Absolutely. Musician. Okay. So a musician who is in the future living in nature. Bam. (laughs) (laughs) Look at you connected all those things. That's fantastic. Joy, get your pen out. Somebody needs to start writing that for Mm, him. Okay. I got a couple other questions for you, Hubert. Um, Love it. What has been the biggest influence on your work as an actor? Uh, my family, I would say, because I draw from them so much in my work, whether it's the emotional preparation I have to do or even when I'm crafting the physicality of a character. You know, sometimes I get very, very, I mean, I'm always specific, but, you know, for instance, I did this play called The Model Apartment with Primary Stages years ago, and I played a character who had a mental disability that was a character that I crafted sort of in piecemeal. I took aspects of different people in my family. You know, for instance, my nephew at the time would do this thing with his fingers where he, you can't see what I'm doing, but he's, um, he would um, sort of fidget with his, uh, his pants, with his fingers, and he wouldn't really make eye contact with you. And I took that and I took a thing that like a sort of pattern of talking that my grandfather used to have. And I just pieced them all together and I put them in there. Yeah, I would say my family is always with me. And I always have pictures of my family. When I'm doing a play in particular, I mm. there's pictures I've been carrying with me for years. And I just put them out in, in front of uh, uh, my dressing room mirror. And I just, I need them there. I nice. love that. Nice. Joy, um, so I think you got the last one, right? You yeah, check this your is phone? the last no. question from the audience. And that is, what motivates you? I like being challenged. I like new challenges. That's what I get excited about when I get auditions. I like looking at an audition and not knowing what I'm going to do with it at first. Like that's what I did with Bob. I read it and I was like, how, what, who, what is this? You know, it's, it's funny, but this is very disturbing time in the country. And he's, I was like, how am I going to pull this off? And so I like the challenge. And that's what keeps me going with the industry because, I mean, there's, there's always a challenge. And then even when you get the part, then you get on set and it's like, okay, there's two cameras and like one is moving, one is stationary. Like, oh, how am I going to do this? I want to convey this thing, but they're going to see the back of my head if I don't do Like, I love the technical challenges and the emotional prep challenges, you know, when you got to be really emotionally raw. I like a good challenge. 
I love that. But you were prepared. I mean, I love how you talk to all of our actors and artists listening out there. You heard Hubert talk about the work he did when he was in NYU and the you know, watching movies of actors he loved. I mean, you were, when your chance came, you, you were ready for it. The work was done. And that seems to motivate you. I mean, you, you're an actor that just keeps working on their craft. And when the opportunities come, you seize it and succeed because of that. I mean, without the homework that you had done years ago with watching and the technical part, it maybe you wouldn't have been ready. I think you're right. I've definitely felt like I've been whatever level I've gotten to in my career, everything that's led up to it helped me for that project. And that's kind of how um, things have been moving with my career. I felt like I've been on very solid ground for um, each opportunity I've had. And yeah, that started from way back in school, <laughs> you know, building There's that. There's a lesson right there. I want to thank you, Hubert, so much. Um, I find you to be a very talented young man with a very big opportunities in front of him. And I encourage everybody to watch his current show. Also, you can download Much Ado About Nothing. The Good Lord Bird is on Showtime. I want to thank you again for your time and your talent and your, your ease and your motivation for all the artists out there. And I thank you, my dear friend, Joy. Thank you guys for bringing points of view that I don't really know about, which is why I look to you and create conversation that can create some change. So I thank you both for that. It's enlightening for me. I just want to learn more. So thank you. And that's our show. We're taking a little time off for the holidays. So our next interview won't come out until January 8th, 2021, when Joy and I will speak with the amazing duo, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. We will ask them about the exonerated, cold country and everything in between. They'll even tell us about their special personal connection to the Lucille Lortel Theater. When we started our show in 2018, we were committed to recording in front of a live audience. When we went virtual, we lost the important element of our show. Well, starting in January, we are going to bring the live back to live at the Lortel. Our show will air live on Monday nights on YouTube. We will still release our show as a podcast for those of you who are listening while you're in your car or on your morning run. But for those of you who want to join us on Mondays, you'll be able to see our amazing guests and ask your own questions. Follow us on Instagram or register on our website, liveatthelortel.com for more details. From everyone at Live at the Lortel, thank you for listening and have a happy, safe holiday season and a healthy new year. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening. 